Great to sing these great hymns and just pick some hymns that would highlight for us some of the great truths of the highlighted and brought back to the forefront during the Protestant Reformation. October 31st, as Richie said, uh, marks that, that date in church history. Uh, and you could think about it like this, just before we get into Psalm 4, uh, you could think of church history uh, in, in a number of movements. You could think of in, with Jesus and the apostles, you have theology uh, formed. Then in the, the coming few hundred years after Jesus and the apostles in the early church, you have uh, this theology uh, confirmed. So formed, confirmed. Then you have deformed in some latter years where uh, different doctrines are being taught that are contrary and there's a, a clouding of the truth as well as uh, taking the average person away from the connection to the text such that the Bible is no longer in the language of the, the common people. So there's this deformation. Of course, there's always a remnant at every point in church history of true believers. Uh, and yet then you have the Reformation, which is a reforming uh, where there's a returning to that which uh, had been obscured uh, to a large degree. And that's in large part through the uh, English Bible being available to, uh, to people through the work of men like John Wycliffe and William Tyndale uh, providing that. And so uh, that's what we mean when we say reformed is this a returning to these doctrines, particularly of salvation. And uh, the Psalms had played a massive role in that in the Reformation period as the reformers uh, leaned heavily upon this uh, ancient hymn book that has been given uh, to Israel first and to the church for our benefit as well. And so we are doing a, a, a study in the Psalms. Uh, we're not doing all 150 yet, but we're doing a, a segment of them, a portion of them. We've looked at Psalm 1, 2, 3, and shocker this morning, Psalm 4. So if you would, take your Bibles and turn in them to Psalm chapter 4. Probably the easiest book in the Bible to find. It's the largest. You could almost go right in the middle and open it, and you'll probably be in Psalms. Psalm chapter 4. Follow along as I read the text. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Selah. But know that Yahweh has set apart the godly for himself. Yahweh hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Selah. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in Yahweh. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Yahweh. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. 
For you alone, O Yahweh, make me dwell in safety. This is the word of the Lord. May he write its truth upon our hearts. Years ago, I worked in a warehouse of a company called Ramboard. Maybe you've seen it in Home Depot. We weren't as big then, but we would... uh, uh, we were working in the, I, I worked with a number of other seminary students when I was in Los Angeles going to seminary, and uh, it was a great job, and we were, I was able to work with some other guys I was in school with, and uh, we were preparing the product for getting shipped out, and we would have like these theological discussions and debates while we were working. We worked like right next to each other, and so we would just be talking nonstop about theology and the Bible, and uh, we would, you know, solve the world's problems uh, <laughs> one issue at a time. And uh, I had a great friend of mine, two, two friends actually who I worked with who are still pastors and uh, dear friends of mine, one of them, Jordan, we were, uh, we were talking, and I distinctly remember this conversation where he was talking about how people often say, rest in peace. And of course, you, maybe you've driven through a neighborhood and seen uh, some uh, skeletons that are nine feet tall and some, you know, uh, gravestones, fake gravestones that say, RIP, rest in peace. And, and Jordan's uh, supposition was that we ought not to say rest in peace lightly. And his point was this, that if someone has not been a Christian, if someone has not placed their faith in Christ and they've died, they are not resting in peace. They're not resting and they are not at peace. And so he was trying to argue that we shouldn't use this as flippantly as it is used. And so we have this discussion and and, and, uh, talk about that. And those are the kind of things uh, that we would talk about in in our time working. Um, he makes a good point, though, uh, about this statement. Uh, resting in peace is really the privilege of the believer whom God has saved. They, they rest. Uh, we have rested in Christ from our works, and then we rest. We enter that eternal rest that God has provided for his own, and, and we rest in peace. Go to be with the Lord. Absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Well, rest in peace may be a good way to think about Psalm chapter 4. Uh, psalm 3 is called an, a morning psalm, be, not like crying, but like morning as in the, a new day, morning psalm, because it, David recalls going to sleep, waking up because the Lord sustained him. So he's in the morning recalling that he woke up by God's grace. Now in Psalm 4, he speaks about going to bed. He's anticipating going to sleep in peace. So they call it an evening psalm. And this psalm truly does help us to find uh, how to rest in peace in this life and in the next. It helps us when we are slandered, when we are, uh, have accusations brought against us that are not true, and how do we rest in peace in days like that when we have enemies uh, attacking us? And also, this psalm has actually become a comfort to those facing death that they may rest in peace as well. Now, the psalms... Uh, remind us that life is recurring. Because you, you finish Psalm 3, and it's like, wow, okay, there was a big problem in David's life. Absalom, his son, is chasing him, trying to kill him. And, and then there's resolution. The circumstances haven't changed, but David's heart has been calmed. And then Psalm 4 begins, and, and it's back to another issue. Oh, Lord, answer me when I call. And there's many people who are, oh, who will bring us any good? And, and he's facing a new issue. And the Psalms are so realistic, because that's how life is. You come through one season, one challenge. uh, We could say Psalm 3 addresses an external challenge, a threat to David's life. And then Psalm 4 addresses uh, attacks against his person, not physically, but verbally. 
and his reputation. And so this is the way life is. Now, uh, it's, it's hard to be dogmatic if Psalm 3 and 4 are connected, but there is a lot of good hints that they probably are connected. We are told the historical context of Psalm 3 at the beginning in verse, uh, that, that superscription, when he fled from Absalom's son, and we, we set that up last time. Uh, in Psalm 4, we're given a, a different kind of superscription, and it says, to the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. So we're told that it's a psalm of David. David wrote this psalm. It is uh, to the choir master. He's addressing this person to lead in worship. These are for corporate worship, and it's with stringed instruments. And so other times, you'll have different instruments listed in the Psalter uh, about use in worship. Uh, Psalter's not so much concerned about what kinds of instruments are being used, but the content of our worship and and the, that our, our words match uh, even the tone of the songs as well. So we have uh, here uh, not so much a historical uh, connection, but we have other connections in Psalm 4 that remind us of Psalm 3. And so it's likely that these are connected in some way. You have the reference to sleep uh, in chapter 3, verse 5, and then it, to sleep in chapter 4, verse 8. Some have referred to these psalms as spiritual lullabies for us. We have the reference to many enemies in verses 1 to 2 of chapter 3, and then in chapter uh, 4, verse 6, a reference to many as well. You have uh, David saying, I call in, in chapter 3, verse 4, and then again in chapter 4, verse 1. And then David refers to God as my glory in chapter 3, verse 3, and then it's a little bit harder to see it in the ESV because they use a different word. But in chapter 4, verse 2, he says, Oh man, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? And that word for honor is the same word. So my glory. So there's likely a connection there as well. So a number of connections between the two. This is a psalm we can see as we read it about slander and accusations. James Montgomery Boyce says this, In this psalm, the problem is one of malicious slander and lies. It is the psalmist's reputation rather than his person that is being attacked. And what he needs is a sense of the presence and approval of God rather than physical deliverance. Another writer, uh, Peter Craigie, says this, It is a particularly important kind of psalm, for it addresses a fundamental human experience, the experience of injustice, suffering, and oppression. For slander, we need perspective from God. And there are days in the lives of all human beings which require a psalm like this at their end. And so you might say, how, how can I face accusations against me? How can I face someone lying about me and trying to ruin my reputation? What should I do? And David is facing that very circumstance in his life as the king of Israel being slandered, having lies told about him. He prays, he pleads, for them, and then he ponders the privileges of God's people. There's really three lessons that we can draw from this psalm, three teachings that the text has for us related to this context. And we, we see uh, first, the first lesson the psalm has for us is the confident prayer of God's people. The confident prayer of God's people. God's people are those in the text who are set apart. Those, uh, they are those whom... Uh, God has shown covenant love to, and therefore they show covenant love to others. So we see the confident prayer of God's people in verse 1. And look there. It says, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. <laughs> 
It was funny, when I was uh, preparing to study uh, last week, you know, the, the first point was something about call out to God in prayer. And I was like, all right, point one, call out to God in prayer. I mean, it's like the exact same thing. That's what David does here. He does the exact same thing. Uh, but there's some nuance here that adds to what we see. Uh, he, he, he's praying very confidently before God. H.B. Charles Jr. says this, prayer should be your first response, not your last resort. Should be your first response, not your last resort. And that's what David does, is he's being slandered and lied about. He just goes to the Lord in prayer. He brings it to the Lord. We see here a model for us even. He starts by rehearsing God's character, O God of my righteousness, in adoration, then remembering God's care in thanksgiving, and then requesting God's help in supplication. Sometimes we talk about uh, prayer with the acronym ACTS. Uh, A for adoration, C for confession, T for thanksgiving, and S for supplication. It's a good model to just remind yourself so you're not just always asking God for stuff, but that you even begin by praising God and adoring God for who he is. And that's exactly what David does here. There's also an urgency in David's prayer. You can tell he's, he's very uh, pressured in the situation in which he finds himself. He's under pressure. Now, what makes him confident in prayer? And what makes us confident in our prayers? Well, number one, he has confidence because of righteousness. He has confidence because of righteousness. Now, God is a righteous God, to be sure, but that is not necessarily the particular nuance that David has here. Now, if, David were not, if God were not righteous, then what he's saying in particular would not make sense apart from God being righteous, but his nuance is rather uh, to emphasize that he is the God of my righteousness. He is the God of my right, the God who is going to champion the rights of his people. One writer said, he is the God who will show me to be in the right, even though I am misjudged and persecuted. It made me think, though, does God of my righteousness speak of the doctrine of justification? What is that? Well, it is the doctrine by which God declares sinners, objective sinners, to be righteous in his sight. He doesn't make them righteous. He declares them to be righteous in a judicial sense. And so he declares them. So when God sees you, he sees you as righteous. And I think, yes, I think this does have a, uh, a sense of that. Now, David, what he is doing here is taking comfort in the fact that God knows about his integrity regarding those who are slandering him, and God will deal with it. I think that's the main thing he's saying. Oh, God of my righteousness. God, you know what they're saying about me, and you're the only one that really knows my heart, and you know what's true. You know what's true, God, and you will defend your own, God. You will defend me because I am one of yours. And that's really what David is saying. But that really doesn't work unless David is a justified sinner. Unless David has been declared righteous by God, what is the sense of pleading, oh God, you know my heart, you, you're going to defend my cause. God will not defend the cause of the one who is unrighteous objectively, uh, positionally. So David first must be justified by God. He must have God as his righteousness in justification before he can say something like, God, you know this situation and you will defend your own. David is God's own because of his justification. Therefore, he can say, you are the God of my right. You know what they're saying about me, God, and you will deal with it. And he, so he brings it to God. He takes comfort there. But this is where his confidence comes from to approach God because we are not righteous, but because we've been declared and reckoned to be righteous in God's sight because of his son. 
these slanderers of David have joined Satan to be accusers of the people of God. And yet, God's people stand firm nevertheless because God is the God of their righteousness. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20 says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So therefore, the remedy must come from outside of us, not within. Right? The world says you have a problem. Look within yourself to find the solution. The Bible says you are the problem. You need to look outside of yourself. <laughs> John MacArthur recently preached a sermon, and the title was great because it was so like, intriguing, and I was just curious to see what it was. He said, the most hated doctrine in the Bible. And I was like, what is it? And, and it was the doctrine of depravity, that man is so sinful, so wicked, that he's unable, unwilling to come to God. And that's the reality of our condition. And so the remedy must come from outside of us. God must provide our righteousness. God must be our righteousness. Jeremiah 23, verse 5 and 6 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. A branch is a title for the Messiah. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. Yahweh is our righteousness. Yahweh is our righteousness. Now, interestingly enough, Abraham and David, both figures who God made incredibly important covenants with, are both used by Paul as models of justification. In Romans chapter 4, Paul makes this very point in Romans chapter 4, verse 3. He says, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Abraham believed, took God at his word. His object of faith was God and the promise he had made to him. And God reckoned, he, he counted righteousness to Abraham, though Abraham had done nothing righteous. Verse four then says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Have you ever had your boss at, the, you know, at your pay period uh, and, and you go, oh, thank you so much for this gift that you gave me. For, for working. I mean, this is incredible. No, you don't say that. You're like, if you don't get paid, you're like, what? What's the deal? You know, I earn these wages. And that's what he's saying here. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So he's talking about Abraham. Now he says, just as David also speaks of the blessing to th of those, of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And then he quotes uh, from Psalm 32, Psalm of David. And so they are both held up as models of justification, righteousness. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, And because of him, because of, of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Christ is our righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God treated Christ on the cross as if he lived the life of the sinner so that he could treat you, the believer, as if you live Christ's life of perfect righteousness. It is not that Christ alone died for to take away sins, but he lived to procure a righteousness that God demands. We not only need the penalty of our sins taken away, but we need the performance of righteousness. God, Christ did not just take us back to being like Adam. He took us to being righteous. We have a new head of the human race, Jesus Christ, for the elect, for his own, who has lived the righteous life that Adam did not, and he paid the penalty of our guilt on the cross. So God is truly the God of our righteousness. 
You know, what a person clings to in some of their most death, desperate situations says a lot about a person. What they talk about, think about, what, what, is their, what, is their, what they're clinging to says a lot. J. Gresham Machen, one of the founders of Westminster Theological Seminary after Princeton went liberal, uh, he found himself on his deathbed about seven years, six or seven years after the founding of Westminster Seminary. The year was 1936. And he, had, he was speaking around and he got pneumonia. And in his last words, he telegraphed back to uh, Philadelphia to his friend and colleague, John Murray. And he said the following. And there's, you can find it. It's an old telegraph. And, you know, it's, it says the words and it says stop. And then like the, for the next statement. Uh, and it says this. Here's what he said in his last words. He said, quote, So thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. No hope without it. What does he mean active? He means Christ's law keeping. That Christ obeyed the law perfectly on our behalf. And he died then as a substitute for us. So he's saying, my hope right now in the face of death is that God is the God of my righteousness. Christ is my righteousness. I stand before God completely righteous, declared righteous, not because of myself, but because of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's holding me in this desperate time before my death. There's no hope without it. And so what is the confidence that David has? What is the confidence believers have as they approach God in prayer? They come confidently because God is the God of our righteousness. Talking about the Reformation, all right? This is the doctrine of justification. This is the material principle of the, the, the uh, Reformation. It's justification by faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so <laughs> I, uh, there was an elder at the church I uh, used to serve at, and he would often open his prayers Father, we come to you not on our own merits, but on the merit of Jesus Christ. What is he saying? He's saying, God, you are our righteousness and not our own. So you can come confidently and boldly before God, not in yourself, but, but, what God, but in what God has accomplished on your behalf. And so he has confidence because of righteousness. All right, amen, pray, let's close, right? Let's sing the doxology. But we have more. You're like, Robert, how are you possibly going to, all right, just pray for me, all right? So how are we going to make it through this? All right, so he has confidence in prayer also because of past faithfulness. I mean, just look how practical this psalm is already. We're not even through verse one. Past faithfulness. Look at what he says in the second line there. You have given me relief when I was in distress. David now recalls a past time when God had been favorable towards him, when God had acted on his behalf. This is a really fascinating way to put it. The word distress indicates being in a tight place. Think of like a spelunker, you know, they're digging through a, or they're going through some caves and it's just like barely enough to fit through. Maybe makes you nervous if you're claustrophobic. Being in this distressed tight place. The word here for relief though indicates making space. So the idea of what David is saying, to make it a little more picturesque, is that God has made space for David in tight places. The idea is that you could say, in tight places, you make room for me. You ever been in a tight place? Has your chest ever felt tight because your situation was so uh, worrisome? It, it was just like, felt like some, an elephant was standing on your chest. And it's like, oh, this is so difficult. I don't know what to do. And then you prayed and the Lord brought relief. And it was like a, a relief, a, a release, making space for you. We talk this way too. We say, I'm in a bind. I'm in a jam. I'm between... A rock and a hard place, exactly. And so we talk this way, and he's saying, you make room for me, God. 
I think I thought of the Star Wars scene. Maybe you haven't seen that movie. That's okay. But where they're like in episode four and it's like the, the trash compactor is, is about to close them in and squish them. And they put up like a bar and it holds the thing from, and they escape from it. It's like they're in, we're in a tight place, but we escaped. That's this idea. Have you known pressure like that and then found relief from the Lord? David recalls that past time to give him confidence in the present. Spurgeon said it like this. Here is another instance of David's common habit of pleading past mercies as a ground for present favor. We need to do that too. Think for yourself, when has God been faithful to you? When has God answered your prayers before? Let that be then a confidence for you to continue to pray to God and ask him boldly to answer you again. And I don't just mean this like, oh, Robert said that, now I'm gonna just forget it. Like you need to actually go and think and write down some things, maybe in a journal and go, I need to actually think about this because it's easy to go, yeah, I should do that and then forget about it totally. But there's no help in that. You need to actually go, God, how have you been faithful? I, I, I'm so forgetful. Lord, please remind me. And then recount those things. Oh God, you've done this, you've done that. I was in this tight place and you brought me through. That is going to give great confidence in prayer. We need to do those things. We need to remind ourselves. Think of the hymn, Jesus, Jesus, how I love him, how I've proved him o'er and o'er. Just God, again, you've proved yourself time and time again to be faithful, bringing relief. And so David is confidently praying. He goes to God in prayer because God is the God of his righteousness and also because he's had relief in the past. God has answered past prayers. And so he goes to him again. He also has confidence in prayer because of present grace. He says, be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Now, how is this a reason for confident prayer? Well, it actually reminds us that God doesn't owe us anything. We're not deserving of anything in and of ourselves. And so therefore, we have to go to God and ask for his grace as we come to pray to him, to be gracious to us. But here's the great confidence that God is a gracious God. God is the God of all grace. And so he loves to be gracious. Remember when Jesus like, what father, if his child asks for bread, will give him a snake? <laughs> and I mean, April Fool's maybe, but, uh, but not typically. So he's like, how much more your heavenly father, won't he give you that what you need? Won't he hear your prayers? Of course he will. And so God is a God of grace. And so David has confidence. Now you just have to remember, uh, it is not the, you know, God is not gonna answer you because you have more tears or because you, you, you did some good works this week. Sometimes we can fall back into that, into a work system, a legalistic spirit where we go, oh, I've had a really bad week. The Lord's displeased with me, so I'm gonna have to have a really good week for God to be pleased with me and hear my prayers now. Yeah, that's like work salvation, right? It's like, we don't come to God that way. We come because of grace. Go, oh, God, forgive me. Be gracious to me. I don't deserve any answers to prayer. And yet, Lord, you love to show grace. Reminds me of that song, Rock of Ages. Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. It's not the amount of your tears. It's just, God is not a pagan God. Where you have to cut yourself and sacrifice your child and, and do something to get God's attention. This is how serious I am, God. God doesn't work like that. God is a God of grace. He doesn't need anything from you. He gives to you. And so if he's the giver and not the receiver, then we come to him and ask for him to be gracious. And praise God, he is a gracious God. He loves to. I mean, just pause and consider how great it would be for you to pray like this and for me to pray like this. Like to want to pray like this and, and to say, oh, I wish my prayers were just spontaneous like that. This is why we need the Psalms. They teach us to pray. They are a, a lesson for us in prayer. 
They're like a coloring book for our prayers. You think you give a kid a coloring book, or there's, there was a craze a little while back for adult coloring books as well, and, and coloring books, they give you the outline, and you color it in, right? And the Psalms are like that. They give us the outline of good prayers, and you fill it in with your particular confession, your particular praises of God, your particular uh, thanksgivings for your particular past graces in God, of God in your life, and your particular request. But it gives us sort of the outline, and then you color it in. And I think you should use the Psalms like that, where you read what David prayed, and there's an analogy situation in your life and you use it as a springboard to fill in your own prayers making it your own and in this way we have good instincts in prayer that are developed it's like spiritual muscle memory right anything you got to develop certain things you're awkward at first but over time you get muscle memory at it over and over again by repetition and as we imbibe the psalms and hear how the psalmist prays and what they focus upon, how they often start with praising God before asking God as a typical pattern, then our prayers become like that. We have those reflexes. Can I suggest to you a practice? This isn't a command at all, but it's just a suggestion, a a potential application. Have you ever written out your prayers before you've prayed them? Uh, To to just write them down and think, what am I going to say to God? What do I want to say to God? You might say, well, that doesn't sound very genuine or spontaneous. Have you ever written a love letter before? Did you ever write a love, a love letter? Someone who you, who, you, who you really wanted to communicate your, your affection for them, your love for them. Maybe it wasn't uh, your spouse or maybe, maybe it was just a, a letter to a friend and you were trying to say exactly what you wanted to say so you thought about it. Maybe you've had something really important you needed to communicate to someone so you, you wrote it down, you thought carefully about it before you sent it. Hey, how much more important is God? The God of the universe, that yes, we do have access to confidently come and just pour out our hearts to him and, and labor, but there's also a helpful time to say, you know, I really want to craft this well and think about this. I mean, isn't the Holy Spirit just as actively involved if you were to craft a prayer in, in, on page as if you were to say it out loud in, in just spontaneously? He can work in both of those ways. This is what the Psalms are, <laughs> prayers written down, right, that we benefit from. I've done this before. It is very helpful. It, you know, one time, this is just me confessing on my, you know, telling on myself. I, sometimes we can be so flippant in our prayers, we just go into autopilot mode. One time I was praying with my kids and I was like about to put them to bed and I said, Lord, we thank you for this food. That was like the first thing that came out of my mouth. And I was like, wait a minute. And I actually confessed to the Lord in front of my kids and said, Lord, forgive me for being so flippant in prayer that that would just be the first thing that came out of my mouth. Because it's like, that you just get, oh Lord, thank you for this food, da 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 And I was like, wait, this is not even the time for that. And that was just kind of flowing out. And so there's time when we go, I need to reevaluate. And I think if you were to kind of build that into a, a practice to say, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna write a, a prayer to the Lord based on this season of my life, it would actually help you in the more spontaneous times of prayer. When you have the structured time, it then allows you to freely flow in, in just spontaneous prayer. So that's just an idea, that's just a suggestion. This is the confidence that we have in prayer, the people of God have in prayer, because of righteousness, because of remembering past answers to prayer and God's blessing and of God's grace to us. And the psalm here takes a, a, quite a shift. And in the second point, we see God, David speaking, really he's still speaking to God, but he addresses men now. And here we see the compassionate pleading of God's people the compassionate pleading of God's people in verses 2 to 5. David addresses those who are against him. He moves from speaking directly to God to speaking to those who are opposed to him and to God. Look at these verses. 
Verse 2, he says, O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Selah. But you, but know that Yahweh has set apart for the godly for himself. Yahweh hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Selah. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in Yahweh. John Chrysostom, uh, he was uh, in the early church around the 300s. He was known as the uh, the golden mouth preacher. He, he was like, that was his nickname because he was such a great preacher in order. He's, uh, j- you can find his sermons online, uh, a great stalwart of the faith, uh, incredible preacher. Something he's one of the greatest preachers in church history. Here's what he once said. He said, if he were the fittest in the world to preach a sermon to the whole world, gathered together in one congregation and had some high mountain for his pulpit, from whence he might have a prospect of all the world in his view and were furnished with a voice of brass, a voice as loud as the trumpets of the archangel, that all the world might hear him, what would he preach? What would you preach? What would be your text that you would preach? He said he would choose to preach upon no other text than in the Psalms. O men, how long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Psalm 4, verse 2. You think, that's interesting. I don't think I would have chosen Psalm 4 too. But that's what David is doing here. He is preaching. He is pleading with people who are opposed to him and thereby opposed to God. And it's a compassionate sermon. He addresses them by saying, oh men. And really this, this word uh, for men here is actually not the normal term. It's used elsewhere in the Psalms of the highborn in society. Uh, those who have status influence and wealth. And so David is likely thinking of those in that class who are opposing him as king. And he addresses these people, calling them to repentance. And really there's two aspects to what his compassionate plea is. There is a challenge to be reasonable in verse 2, and then a call to repentance in verses 3 to 5. First, he challenges the ungodly to be reasonable. And I think this is why Chrysostom wanted to preach this text. It almost sounds like Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and, and the people's plot in vain? And so how foolish to set yourself against the sovereign. So, oh man, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? This how long uh, statement is, is common for lament psalms, but it's usually directed to God. Here he's addressing it to men. And when he says, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? We, we pointed out earlier that this word honor is the same as the word glory. And David spoke of God as his glory in chapter 3, verse 3. But what's happening in the psalm? Well, they're attacking David, his honor, his right as king. And so are they attacking God or are they attacking David? And the answer is yes. Because David is the anointed king who represents Yahweh as the anointed of the Lord. Just like Psalm 2 sets up for the anointed of the Lord, the king whom Yahweh has appointed, who is Yahweh, uh, the son, he represents him. And so David, as a lesser king, a Davidic king nevertheless, he is David, <laughs> uh, he, he represents God and his rule. And so to oppose David is to oppose God. 
this idea of uh, how long shall my honor be turned into shame, they were attacking David's faith in Yahweh. Remember they said in chapter 3, there's no salvation for him in God. God won't save him. David continues by saying, how long will you love vain words and seek after lies? And he says, say lie. He wants him to think about this. Pause and think about this. Vain words are empty words, hollow words. They, in other words, he's saying, you guys love emptiness. How long? He's reasoning with sinners, reasoning with the lost and saying, what are you doing? How long are you going to pursue this path that is empty, that it's like smoke? It's going to be gone in a second. It's the same word in chapter 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain, plot in emptiness? It's just vapor. He goes on by saying, they seek after lies. They seek after lies. These lies are likely about David himself. They may also indicate the false philosophies they go after. If you don't have the truth, you're believing lies. Psalm 40, verse 4 says, Blessed is the man who makes Yahweh his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. What a text. I mean, it's saying, if you're not submitted to the Lord's anointed, to the Lord's king, you're pursuing emptiness. You're fighting after the wind. And not only that, you're pursuing lies. You're, you're, you're dead set on pursuing that which is not true. You are going against reality. Truth is a statement of what is real, what is reality. Here there's some here who have turned God's glory into shame by seeking after empty things and pursuing lies. If they may technically be associated and close to the people of God in the church of God, and yet that they're concerned about is what is hollow, what is empty, it is lies. And yet God often reasons with us in that state to call us back. He reasoned with Cain not to go the way he was going. He reasoned in Isaiah 1 verse 18. He said, come now, let us reason together, says Yahweh. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. It's a reasoning with them. David is reasoning with his enemies and saying, compassionately, why are you going to do this? How long are you going to pursue this pathway? And I say to you, if you're here, dear sinner, how long are you going to go after your sin? How long are you going to pursue this way and, and, and rebel against your creator, knowing you're going in the wrong way? David addresses the ungodly to be reasonable. Then he calls them to repent. And, and here's we see the second part, challenging the ungodly to repent, verses 3 to 5. And he gives seven commands in these verses. No, tremble, do not sin, ponder, be still, sacrifice, trust. Together, they really describe turning from sin and turning to God. They describe a conversion, repentance and faith. He calls for, not only that, but he calls for a total turnaround. He calls for, he addresses the mind, he addresses the affections, and he addresses the will. In verse 3, he addresses the mind. In verse 4, the affections. In verse 5, the will. Look at this first command. It's a challenge to the mind. But know that Yahweh has set apart the godly for himself. Yahweh hears when I call to him. David calls upon them to know something. It's a challenge to the mind. He, Yahweh has set apart the godly for himself. 
And if you trace out this phrase set apart, it's actually used in Exodus a number of times for God setting apart Israel from the Egyptians. He, they are his distinguished people. Exodus 8, 22, 9, 4, 11, 7. It describes this distinction. And then the phrase the godly is an interesting word too. It, it's the word, so maybe you've heard someone tell you the word hesed. It's a Hebrew word that's very common and it's hard to translate because it has a lot of ideas packed into it. It's the idea, sometimes it's translated loving kindness, loyal love, steadfast love, uh, God's hesed. Here, this is the word hesed. Uh, and so it's, it, it is speaking about either those who show steadfast love or those who've been shown steadfast love. We actually get our word Hasidic Jews from this word. And so it, it refers really, I think, to both. Alec Motier says that this covenant one, this godly one, is the one loved by God and who loves him back. Is the idea. It's reciprocal. David was in covenant with God, 2 Samuel 7. God made a special promise to him. And so he was his own. He was distinguished. And therefore God would hear his prayers. Because I am the godly one. I am the chosen one. The one who God has shown his love to me. Therefore, when I pray, God hears me. He hears me. And you're opposing me, the king. Now, there's a uniqueness to this psalm. I mean, we're not David. We're not the king of Israel. And yet David is being opposed. And so he's saying, you're setting yourself up against the Lord's anointed, right? Against the king. And you're in the wrong. And you need to repent, is what he's really saying. We, we're not there, right? We're not uh, a king. However, we experience very much the same blessings that David has in the new covenant. We are God's chosen ones. We are the ones whom God has showed his loyal love to. We are the ones who are in covenant with God because of the new covenant in, uh, inaugurated by the blood of Christ. It, Romans 8, tell me if this sounds similar to what David is saying. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Yeah, we have this special covenant love. This is, we are God's people, God's covenant ones. And David is saying, in essence, consider the one you are opposing. You're opposing one of God's children, one of God's chosen ones. How's that going to go for you? Remember Elisha in 2 Samuel 2? Elisha is going and he's preaching and he is God's anointed man to be a prophet to the people of Israel. When Elisha speaks, he speaks for God. And so he's going through this town and he's been preaching and there's these some young men and don't think like, you know, a two-year-old. Think of like, you know, maybe some teenagers and, uh, and, and they're, uh, he's walking through this town and they go, go up you bald head, go up you bald head. And Elisha, he calls upon God to send some she-bears and they come and they maul 42, I think, of these, of these children. Yeah. And like I said, they're, they're not like, you know, little infants. They are enough, uh, well aware enough to take on their own responsibility to curse the prophet of God. And God curses them and kills them. And so it's like saying, you're going to go against the one whom God has chosen and set apart. That is not a good choice. That's what David is saying. He's saying, I am God's anointed one. And you're slandering me? It's the same for the people of God. And so I think in a way we can say, if people were to slander you and, and people were to uh, say things that were not true about you, and what is your recourse? Do you just defend yourself every time? Depends on the circumstances. But I think in large part, 
we don't have to defend ourselves. I think in large part, we can say, God, you know, you will deal with them. And here's a very practical point. What does David do? He reminds him, himself of who he is in God's sight. He is God's chosen one. I think you can find recourse for yourself when you are being opposed by others. God knows all about me. Here's what God has said about me. Remind yourself what God says is true about you, not what people are lying about you. Remember what God says. This is the, first the, the charge he makes to the mind of the ungodly. Then he, he makes a charge to them against their, towards their affections. Not against, but to their affections, their heart, in verse 4. Now, ESV says, be angry and do not sin. Uh, NASB, New American Standard Bible, has tremble and do not sin. And I think that's a better way to take this. This word is kind of fluid. It, it can have the idea of shaking, to be agitated with a strong emotion. It can refer to uh, anger, uh, but it can also refer just to a trembling. Uh, Israel's trembling before the presence of God, shaking. I think that's the idea here. Uh, Alan Ross, he says, the word tremble can refer to any strong emotion, anger, fear, disquietude, but, but essentially means to tremble in fear and dismay. Here, in response to God's goodness to his people, in spite of all the attempts of the slanders to discredit them, David was calling for his enemies to be shaken to the core so that they would stop sinning. In essence, I think he wants them to fear God, tremble before God. I think that's the sense here in Psalm 4. It's similar to what Solomon would say in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. That sounds a lot like tremble and do not sin. Right? To do not sin is do God's commandments. Right? Uh, so I think it's very similar to what he's saying here. He, he's calling them to fear God. Consider who you're opposing and then fear God. Repentance involves, yes, a change in our thinking about sin, but it also involves a remorse over our sin, a trembling before the holiness of God. Yes, there can be a, a false repentance, a, a false remorse, a worldly remorse that's more concerned about consequences than the character of God that we've sinned against. But there is this trembling before God inherent in repentance. And then that then leads to this resolve against sin. When he says, do not sin, tremble and do not sin. Now, I think the idea he's making here is this resolve against sin. Repentance doesn't mean we... We clean up our lives, we make our lives just, you know, better, and then we show God, see, I was repentant. It's, it's this, this resolve that God works in us to say, I, I identify the enemy, and I'm against that enemy, even if we haven't fought any battles, so to speak. This is this resolve against sin. Sin should be of great concern to us, more than suffering. I mean, David is suffering here, but sin, this is one of the things the Puritans really put their finger upon. Joel Beakey, talk, talking about the, the Puritans and their view of sin, he says that they had the idea that the smallest sin is far worse than the greatest affliction. The smallest sin is far worse than the greatest affliction. And they, they thought this because slight views of Christ, slight views of sin lead to slight views of Christ. If you downplay your sin and its offense to God, then you downplay the worth of Christ and what he has done to rescue us from sin. And so if you have sober views of sin, then you have exalted supreme views of Christ. 
So he says, tremble, do not sin. And he says, ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. He, he wants them to reflect, to think deeply. Give thought to your ways. Now, I, I admit, this is a very hard thing to do in our day and age because I think we're so plugged in. We're so, we have so much noise around us. I mean, I, like I get in the car, I listen to a podcast or, or music or an audiobook, and then I get out and I'm talking to someone. And then if I, if I have some downtime, I'll, I'll, I'll look at something on my phone. And, uh, and it's just like we're constantly plugged in such that it's like we have constant input coming in and little time to reflect on what is coming in and our hearts. And, and yet, even still, even in these days in which we live, we're, sometimes we need to make space for ourselves from that. But even at night, when you're on your bed, when you're lying down, those, those are still the times when you can reflect, when those thoughts come in your head, when you become most reflective about your life. Here's a, just a suggestion. Uh, don't make it a, a, a practice of like falling to sleep to like the TV or something. Redeem these times where, I, I actually, it's one of my favorite things to do is fall asleep watching something because I'm like so exhausted. I'm like, oh, I love that. You know, it's like, what happened? You know, but I'm saying as a practice, if you're constantly never unplugging from your life of entertainment, then it's going to be hard to reflect upon your life, your heart before God. We need times of silence and solitude. Those can be scary times, but maybe that's supposed to be that way. If you're not dealing with hard issues, that God wants you to. So ponder in your hearts and on your beds. Be silent. Think about what God would have you evaluate in your own heart. What should you think about? Think of the worthlessness of sin. Think of the worthiness of Christ. Allow you to allow time to reflect upon how the day was spent. Is there sin to confess? Is there things to give thanks for? Are there requests to bring before the Lord? Is there cause to adore God? We need those times of reflection. And certainly, for those who are under conviction... If you are under conviction of sin, but you don't feel like you've been delivered from your sin yet, like you feel like Pilgrim in Pilgrim's Progress, he has the great burden on his back, but he's not yet found relief from it, I would say lean into that. Lean into that. Make no rest for your soul until you find rest in him. Just lean in. Read good books. Read the Bible. Wrestle with God in prayer. Don't be too quick to alleviate that guilt. Why do you feel guilt? Because you are guilty. <laughs> that's why and so don't stop until God gives you relief from that as you seek him and, and his son and the forgiveness that's found only in him don't clutter your life up with distractions that would dull away and make you forgetful of your need for Christ then he gives a challenge to the will a challenge to the will to the mind to the affections to the will he says Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in Yahweh. Really, he's saying some, in some way they were offering wrong sacrifices. It could be offering sacrifices to the wrong God, offering sacrifices to the right God, but in the wrong manner or with the wrong attitude. Either way, he wants them to offer what God has said. And of course, we're in a new covenant context. These sacrifices pointed forward to the Messiah uh, who would take away sins once for all time. And so we look, we, we would say it like this in the New Covenant, look to the sacrifice provided in Christ. Look away from yourself and look to the Lord Jesus Christ, the sacrifice to cleanse you from your sins and put your trust in Yahweh. Put your trust in the second person of the triune God, Yahweh, who is the eternal God and truly man who has died on the cross for sinners. 
Trust in him. Rely upon him. So repent and trust. That's what he's calling them to here. This is an incredible prayer. And what a psalm for us to pray for our loved ones. It's compassionate prayers. Oh God, cause them to know your favor upon your people. Cause them to see that there are only the righteous and the wicked in the world. And that they are the wicked opposed to you and your people. Oh God, bring them to have a sense of you. Of who you are and your word that would make them tremble in fear of you. Cause your holiness to overwhelm them in view of their immense sin. Oh God, turn them from their sin. Bring them to repentance over their sin, oh God. God, may you bring them to contemplate their spiritual condition upon their beds. Remove their sleep from them until they come to rest in you. God, make them ponder their sin and its offense to you. May they feel their guilt before you more than ever before. May they long to be rid of their guilt in the only way they can. May they look to the only sacrifice provided for sinners. Cause them to see the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ as their only hope. Grant them trust in you that they may be saved. May you make them to be counted among the godly ones. Be gracious to them. And may they be able to join me in calling you the God of my righteousness. I mean, that's how we should pray these psalms. That's how you should use the coloring book of the psalms is to say, here is David pleading for the lost. I need to plead like this for the lost. Here's what he's doing. He's still praying to God, but he's addressing men. It's been said, before you speak to men about God, you should speak to God about men. Because the, the words that you bring from, hopefully the truth of the scriptures, will need the power of the spirit to unlock the key of the heart. And so we pray to God on behalf of men that they would then hear the gospel message when we speak it to them with faith. And so this is the, the compassionate pleading of the people of God for those who are lost. And finally, and briefly here, notice the comforting privileges of God's people. The comforting privileges of God's people. So you're being slandered, you're being opposed, go to God in prayer confidently. And then plead for, for those people before the throne of grace that God would save them. Bring them to their senses instead of retaliating against them. And then remind yourself of the comforting privileges that you have. Notice here the, the privilege of the presence of God in verse 6. He, here's someone saying, many who are saying continually, who will show us some good? I mean, what, what is the benefit of this, David? What's in it for me? What's David's response? Well, he, he makes an allusion to Numbers 6, 26. This is the ironic blessing. Lift up your face upon us, O Yahweh. We'll read this in a moment for our benediction. It, 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 this God's face signifies his presence his favor towards his people. To lift up his face is to show his favor in the form of his presence, his closeness. This is David's longing. He wants, a, he wants them to know, the people of God to know the light of his face. He wants him to know it personally. He wants others to know it. There, there's a sense in which we have seasons in our life, we have more of a felt presence, felt, felt uh, sensing the presence of God near us. When we don't have it, we desire it. When we do have it, we delight in it the object of our love, God's presence. This is where the Bible is headed, Revelation 22, 4. They will see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. A way to say that we'll be in his presence, in, in the fullness of his presence. We'll know his favor in that. A friend of mine said this, the presence of Christ is 10,000 times sweeter than the absence of suffering because the burden of sin is so much worse than any sufferings as long as they are attended by the company of Christ and the Holy Spirit far better the presence of Christ than any suffering. 
Now, interestingly enough, David, the king from Judah's line, one writer pointed out, prays for the people in the words of Aaron, anticipating the Psalm 119 king who would also be priest. David prays a priestly prayer as the king. Psalm 110 tells us about the Messiah who is both king and priest. This is a little foreshadowing of Christ who would be the one who would intercede on behalf of his people as their king and as their high priest. Something here that reminds us of the benefits of corporate worship. As David says this, this line that would have been so common to the people of God in corporate worship. We come here together because there is a special expression of God's grace to us. More, it's almost like this. You could say the Bible emphasizes corporate togetherness worship more than private devotion. That may sound shocking to you, but, but there is something special that as we sing to one another, as we hear the blessings of God in the means of grace through the preaching of the word, the singing of the word, the praying of the word, the singing of the word in the ordinances, and, and all these things, it has a special effect upon us. God does us good in this time. And I know you know that. The presence of God then leads to the joy he has in God, the pleasure of God. So here's the comforting privilege of the, of the pleasure in God. In verse seven, this is just such a great verse. This is like, worth the whole psalm. Look at verse 7. You have put more joy in my heart than they, than they have when their grain and wine abound. What incredible joy here. What is it we most often pray when trials come? I would dare say we pray that God would remove them. God remove this trial. That's often not the main purpose of the Lord, though it may be. He's seeking something in the trial. He can often change us in the trial. He can put joy in your heart through it in a way that having great material blessing and prosperity cannot do. What are some things that money cannot buy? It's joy, peace, sleep. He says, you put more joy in my heart than they when they're, new, when they're grain and wine abound. When harvest comes, when the time when, when we get paid. I mean, this is just incredible. The payday has come. This is incredible. The world is so excited for this. He's saying, I got more joy than that. I mean, consider the source of this joy, God. You have put this in my heart. The sphere of this joy is in the heart. There's the superiority of this joy. More joy than they have. And then payoff at the end of the year is the harvest. Psalm 37, 16 says, Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. Spurgeon said, Christ in the heart is better than corn in the barns superiority of this joy that we have. And then we might say the stability of this joy. He speaks about when their grain and wine abound. They're waiting for joy when circumstances are right. Yet we can acknowledge God's goodness in circumstances, but we can also have a joy that is, transcends our circumstances. We might say with Habakkuk, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be found on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in Yahweh. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Yahweh, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Paul knew this. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, he said, to find his life. 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, are you, uh, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Much affliction with joy given by the Spirit of God. I mean, I hope you can say this. I hope the world looks at you and can affirm this too. Man, they have more joy than my best days. They have more joy than my best day. 
This is the comforting privilege of the pleasure in God. We see also the comforting privilege of the peace of God. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. This reminds us of Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Isaiah 26, 3. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you story of uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones' wife. She, he was the pastor at Westminster Chapel in London. Bethan Lloyd-Jones tells a story about herself. She was, uh, this is recounted in, uh, the, in Murray's biography. He says, she was with her husband, Martin, in his first pastorate in South Wales. One oppressive fear kept to herself haunted her. The southwest gales blowing in from the sea brought to her mind how two former settlements in that locale had perished. She bought a timetable of the tides so she would know the times of the high tides. One night her husband was away. She was alone with the baby and a vicious wind blowing in from the sea. She said she was beside herself with fear, in panic, sleepless and tossing in her bed. What if the tide came up? Victoria Road, she thought. Could she get out with the baby through a window on the roof? Finally, in simple despair, she got out of bed on her knees and prayed, Lord, if it is all true, if you are really there and will answer my prayer, please give me peace and take all my fear away. As she spoke, it all went away. No more fear of gales and tides, completely delivered and asleep in two minutes. <laughs> I love that. You think maybe that's odd. Maybe that's a, an odd experience. No, I don't think so. I think that's the peace that God can give. This is that great peace that God loves to pour out on his children. They are his. And then we see the comforting privilege of the protection of God. For you, O Yahweh, make me dwell in safety. This isn't just a passage helping us to sleep, but a passage helping us to die. You alone, O Yahweh, make me dwell in safety. Graham Scrooge recounts the execution of Nicholas Ridley. He lived from 1500 to 1555. Bishop of London. His brother offered to pass his last hours in his company, but the bishop refused, saying that he meant to go to bed and sleep as quietly as he ever did in his life. Now, don't stay with me. I want to sleep tonight. I'm on the verge of being put to death. I will lay me down in peace and take my rest, for it is thou, Lord, only that maketh me dwell in safety. He took comfort in the psalm. The next morning, he was chained to the stake in the town ditch, opposite the south front of Balliol College, Oxford. As the flames rose round him, he exclaimed with a wonderful loud voice, Lord, Lord, receive my spirit. This is the, this is the protection of God's people. We see the con confident prayer of God's people, the compassionate pleading of God's people, and the comforting privileges of God's people. Presence of God, pleasure in God, peace of God, and his protection. Man, you come through a psalm like this. You start wherever you're at. I don't know how you can end and not just be thrilled at God and his grace. May the Lord, through his precious promises, founded and grounded upon your dear Savior, Jesus Christ, grant that both now and in death you may rest in peace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word to us. Many here need to hear this. Many in different places, circumstances. You know them all, Lord. You're aware. I pray that you'd minister your word, the specifics of this text that they need to hear and be encouraged by. And Lord, if there's those here who don't know you, would you not give them rest until they find rest in Christ? 
And may it be that they would find it. And Lord, we thank you for the rest that we know and the rest in this life, even when people may be against us and the rest that we have coming in the next life when we would lay our heads down in death, whenever that may come. We ask these things. We praise you for these things, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, please stand. Let's respond in worship with Be Thou My Vision, uh, 176, hymn 176.